Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 21. As usual, if you have questions that you want me to answer on the podcast, you can send them to me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and please in the subject line write something like a question uh, that helps me sort of sort through my email. Or send them through Facebook. There's a messenger widget in the bottom right corner of the website scientifictriathlon.com. So you can send your questions directly there as well. We have several questions today. And the first one is from Wade in the state of New York, United States. He writes, Michael, I love the podcast and have learned tons from you. Thank you. I have a question about lactate production and threshold testing. I have a ride that I do on the trainer and I consistently experience different average heart rates in the intervals. It's a recovery ride with uh, a 0.63 intensity factor, so that means uh, 63% of functional threshold. The variability of my heart rate can be around 10 beats per minute from ride to ride, while average uh, heart rate over the long term has trended to get lower. I still notice good and less good days with respect to my average heart rate. This has me wondering if uh, training to uh, to lactate threshold heart rate is necessarily better than training by uh, power. So I'll stop reading there and answer this part that has been uh, discussed so far in the question. Uh, so this question, if I understand it correctly, uh, what way what you're asking is you have done a test of uh, your lactate threshold where actual lactate samples have been uh, taken. So you have uh, knowledge of what your actual lactate threshold heart rate is from that testing. Uh, but now, if you go out and, and train to that heart rate all the time, you know that that your power is going to be different because you see that your heart rate is varying by 10 beats per minute from ride to ride. So, so it is a highly relevant question for a lot of people because, yes, you're absolutely right that there is a a large day-to-day variation in heart rate. And there are many reasons for this. We've talked about that many times before, but some of them include heat, uh, caffeine, fatigue, hydration. There's there's just plenty going on there. So that's why, that's why it's so variable. This means that uh, you're right, it's not the ideal metric to base intensity off of, uh, but it's not useless either, not by any means. We just need to use it while being aware of the the variations that we can see from day to day and being aware that it's not an exact metric. So I guess to answer her question there, if I read it again, so that was, this has me wondering if training to lactate threshold is better, is necessarily better than training by power. And I would definitely say that I prefer to train by power. It's simple as that. It's uh, I think it's more accurate than to train uh, by uh, by heart rate, but what I wonder is, didn't you get your lactate threshold power at the same time that you did that lactate threshold test? Because you you should have uh, been getting that threshold power as well as part of your of your test. So uh, so what I would do is, I think that uh, there's great value in doing in doing tests that are better than just a twenty minute field test, uh, like a lactate test. Uh, but uh, but I think that you should have received your lactate threshold power in addition to the heart rate, and then you can use both of them, but use power as your primary guide of intensity and heart rate would more be something that you look at 
well, as you say, you can look at it over time. Like, is the average trend trend going downwards? So, so that's sort of what I would suggest to you. But uh, here's another tip to give you then for future tests and to give any listener who is uh, who is considering getting a lactate test. To get the most out of that test, you want it done on your own bike with your own power meter, your own equipment, uh, perhaps even your own uh, your own indoor trainer. If you maybe you are using using the bike power off your trainer and not your own power meter, well then you would bring your trainer to that uh, testing facility. Or perhaps somebody is coming to your home to do the testing, which is absolutely possible. But anyway, when you do those these lactate tests, you want to set it up to be as similar as possible to, to the way you will be training. Because if you do it on something like a watt bike or an ergometer, then you have a different power meter. Perhaps there is a fan in the testing facility that you don't have at home. Or hopefully the other way around, that you have a fan at home but no, none in the testing facility. That's also something to keep in mind when it comes to your heart rate. So uh, so there are plenty of things that, that really can uh, sort of bias uh, the results from these tests. Uh, even, even if you do everything, you set it up to a good, you use the same equipment that you'll be training on. Lactate tests, they determine lactate threshold uh, to an accuracy of 5 to 10%. So it's it's not exact. That's something that we need to be aware of. But it's still much more accurate than just taking 95% of your 20-minute power. So, so I definitely think it's a good thing to do. It's a much better option than a field test. But but if you do it, make sure that you control these variables. Like use your own bike, use your own power meter. And if the lab has a fixed setup that you have to use their bikes, you have to use their power meters, then I wouldn't go to that lab. I would find somebody who comes to your home, pay that person to, to take the lactate, lactate samples, on uh, uh, on you while you're doing some some sort of ramp test, a standard protocol, and and that's how I would assess my lactate threshold, not by going to a lab and testing on their equipment that is completely different from yours. And related to this, by the way, if you do a lactate test for running, then I would definitely encourage you to find a facility that does the running, or a practitioner that does testing on a track. Uh, because a treadmill, it's different to run on a treadmill than it is to run outdoors. So, uh, and the pace that you get from the treadmill might not be super accurate. So then, the pace threshold, the threshold pace that you would get from that test, might be uh, might be slightly off. So, so that's why I would definitely prefer to go and do the lactate test for running on a track, whether it's indoors or outdoors. That would give you a more exact pace that you can then use for running in and actually moving and not just being being on a stationary treadmill so uh, and then you can also then as with uh, the bike discussion i would use pace as the primary metric to base intensity off of still keeping an eye on heart rate and especially the long-term trends but or anything like really really odd that really stands out in the day-to-day training but uh, but mostly using pace but that again I think it's important for the accuracy of the test that you are actually running and moving, so you have that locomotion and not just uh, not just a tread, treadmill. So uh, the question goes on there uh, about uh, uh, so Wade writes. This has me wondering if lactate. Um, sorry, uh, with no real expertise in the subject matter, I would guess that lactate production is triggered by the work power being generated by the muscles. But what is our indicator of the body's ability to process and clear that lactate? Is it heart rate? Uh, so, uh, 
the day the question goes on here uh, but uh, yeah i won't read that much further uh, so because this is uh, i mean as, as interesting as this is i don't think it's relevant uh, i really can't think of any reason why in your day-to-day training you would want to know how much lactate you're actually processing that's why you test periodically to see if you have seen any big improvements but uh, but it's it's not something that you need to worry about day to day and uh, but if it was even if it was important then uh, the answer to your question if you can use heart rate as a marker for how much lactate you're processing uh, then no as i said heart rate is impacted by many different factors like heat uh, heat and hydration are two very big ones caffeine uh, fatigue so so there's so much going on there that you you can't use heart rate as as a marker for for just one single thing because there are multiple variables that impact what your heart rate is so to wrap up this question the the only way that uh, you actually can find out how much lactate you're processing is to uh, is to do uh, a lactate test then you can find out what your what your lactate concentration is at any given intensity but uh, as i said that's not really a bad thing because there for most athletes there's it's there's neither any practical reason nor theoretical really to know in your day-to-day training how uh, how much lactate you're you're processing so so that's uh yeah I, I wouldn't worry about that if i were you so thank you for so much for your question wade now i got a few quite a quite a lot of follow-up questions from uh, last week's q a which was q a number 20 testing for half and full distance triathlon uh, are typical 20 minute tests relevant and are there better options so uh, so thank you for that it was uh, great to see uh, a good response for that episode and uh, the original uh, poster or person asking the question sondre uh, have some has some follow-up questions and he writes uh, thanks so much for taking my questions bottom line uh, as you said yes those uh, traditional field tests are good indicators for training for Ironman performance. Uh, my follow-up questions are, number one, the same conclusion will be made for an athlete training for a sprint or Olympic distance race. Does that mean that, and to to jump in here, what Sonda is saying that these tests are also good for sprint and Olympic racing, good indicators of performance and training progression for those races. And that is absolutely correct. So the question is, does that mean that Ironman and sprint and Olympic training are very much the same? And my answer to that is yes, it is. Uh, in terms of race-specific training that you do in that last build-up to the race, uh, that there will of course be differences there. For the short distances, you will be doing much more high intensity closer to the race. And uh, you won't probably do as much of that for Ironman racing, but you will be going longer. You will be going at race intensity. But outside of that specific race preparation period, which we talked about more in uh, last week's Q&A, it is very similar if you want to maximize your potential at any one of those distances. You, you still need to maximize your abilities as an endurance athlete, period. And the fact that one race is one hour and another race is nine hours or 10 hours or 17 hours, it, it doesn't really matter. It's still an endurance sport and it still has very similar requirements from... Uh, from many different perspectives so so if you want to get out the most of yourself in a sprint race or an ironman race the large majority of your training year let's say that you're building up for 
uh, in scenario one or in a parallel universe A, you train for an Iron Man in September, and in parallel universe B, you train for uh, for a sprint distance in September, and the goal is to crush that race, do your absolute best in both parallel universes. Then, up until perhaps uh, up until sometime in the summer when you start your race specific training preparation, you could be doing the exact same training, and it would be ideal for both. So, so yes, that's the answer to the question. Question number two. What is the point of the long run and long bike session if a tough interval is better for building VO2 max? Um, yeah, so who said that it's better? I know that I did not say that it's better to do tough intervals than to do a long run or a long bike session. Uh, the fact is that both are important. To build VO2 max, we have two major pathways. Intensity, uh, and that is the correct Intensity. There are, of course, there is. So there are some nuances to this, but but typically, ninety to one hundred percent of of VO two max is a is a good benchmark for the ideal intensity to build VO two max, or training volume. And in terms of this training volume, then it's uh, I guess primarily about total training volume, but also those long individual sessions are important. I don't know which one is more important, and I don't think that it's possible to say that one is better than the other. Uh, I think it's quite individual for some athletes. Perhaps the the long run and the long bike might be more important than the hard intervals. For another athlete, the intervals might be more important. I think that most age group athletes are limited mostly not by their intervals, nor by their long run or long bike, but by their total training workload. So, and by that, volume is a, the biggest part of that for sure. Like, I don't want anybody to go out and start to increase the workload by, by doing, by crushing session after, after session, day after day. Volume is going to have the biggest contributing factor to that. So that's where I think that most age group athletes are limited by not usually having the time to do enough, enough training volume to, to really maximize that VO2 max potential. Uh, so, to illustrate this with an example, I guess you can look at elite Olympic distance athletes. And they, right now in February, they will be training around 30 hours per week. Uh, that is very normal. Some might be training more, some might be training less. Most perhaps will reduce that training volume a little bit as we get into the heat of the racing season. But uh, the point here is that endurance capacity, even at the Olympic distance draft legal scene, is to a large extent built up through accumulated training volume over a long period of time. So uh, so this comes back to the original question again with the uh, Ironman versus Sprint and Olympic, that uh, that is why if you want to maximize your performance at sprint or Olympic distance, you also need to try to maximize your training volume. And maximize, of course, here, it does not mean to get it to 30 hours or 40 hours. It means the maximum volume that is sustainable for you your lifestyle and that you can still adapt to positively so so for most of you it's definitely not going to be 30 hours but uh, but i'm coming back i guess again a bit to to question number one or it they sort of flow together here but if you have let's say you have 15 hours to train per week and you can handle that amount of training then if you from one season to the next decide that you used to you did Ironman racing on that 15 hours per week but now you decide that you want to go back down and race sprint distances and be competitive there 
then you should not be dropping any of that volume. You should use all that volume that you have available and that you know that you can adapt to, even if you decide to focus completely on sprint distance racing. And this this is not, of course, because, because you need to train that amount to complete a sprint distance, but we're talking about maximizing your race performance. So I guess to answer the point of uh, that question, what is uh, or the, the question, which is what is the point of the long run and long bike session if tough interval is better? Tough intervals are not better. They are one way to increase VO2 max, but there are a few different pathways. And a very important one is the total volume, but also another important one is the duration of some individual sessions, although that's not anywhere near as important as the, the total volume, nor is the interval sessions. So, uh, so that's, uh, I guess, the answer to that uh, second question. Question number three. If I were to run really long, but at a very slow pace, I would f- still fatigue, even if I take on uh, sufficient calories. An ultra runner has the ability to endure uh, this uh, and uh, endure uh, these sorts of long, slow distance events much longer uh, than a fast three kilometer runner. So this is what I meant by muscular endurance, and uh, this mechanism must be important in Ironman racing too. Correct. Uh, so uh, yes, that, that is absolutely true. That's uh, sort of uh, where the specificity part comes in and specific conditioning to uh, to the aspects of long-distance racing, I guess. So it is absolutely very important. To some extent, uh, this uh, comes back to what we discussed last week with VLA Max, because a lower VLA Max will likely mean that you have, uh, you have transformed some of those fast-twitch fibers the 2x fibers at least to the very fast which to 2a which are more less fatigable more fatigue resistance uh, fast twitch fibers so uh, so that will go some ways to increasing that fatigue resistance over long events like an ironman uh, there are other aspects as well so so i'm not saying that vla max is it's definitely not the uh, the test for this by any means it, it's an indicator but it's not the only uh, the only way and, and I don't think that there's there's no way you can test this other than just going out and training and logging your training that's super important so so I would say that for you to to see whether you're developing this uh, capacity to endure long distances or not you are of course already uh, I'm sure logging your training and by that I mean you're writing down your specific your subjective uh, comments about how each workout went every single day and, and how you feel in general with uh, your training and your improvements. So uh, so go back and look at when you're in that race-specific uh, period, and uh, perhaps you're four weeks in. So when you go back and look at what you wrote four weeks ago in your long run, you might see words like starting to fatigue around minute X, Y, or C, and uh, then four weeks later, you're suddenly feeling strong all the way through, or at least you're fatiguing much later than you used to. So I think this is there's no direct test for this. You just need to be in tune with your body, with how you feel that you can resist fatigue in your training. So so that is the best advice I can give you for for that. And uh, then we have another follow up question as well. This is from Alan in Washington State, in the U.S. And Alan writes. After listening to Q&A number 20, I calculated my percentage difference between the 400 and 200 meter times for the critical swim speed test and found a 9.4% difference in pace. Uh, Times here were were 627 for the 400 meter and 303 for the 200 
meter. So I fall well outside your 5% window and uh, should correct this. What is the best way to make an anaerobic athlete more aerobic? Probably just a lot of so to work, but I want to be sure. Thanks for your question, Alan. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, first, before I answer that uh, specifically, a general note here. I don't want anybody to go and uh, obsess over only ever doing aerobic training and minimizing anaerobic training. It is all context-dependent. Context is king. And really fast training can also have other benefits than just working your anaerobic system. Like, for example, uh, there may be a case for using really fast training, anaerobic training to improve exercise economy, etc. So I'm not saying uh, uh, don't do it, period. I'm saying that whatever training you're doing, know why you're doing it and what you hope to accomplish with any given type of training and know whether there are any trade-offs with the type of training that you're doing and and have a benefit-risk ratio or a benefit-risk assessment, I guess, of, of what those what those trade-offs are. So for you, uh, Alan, and uh, let's talk about swimming specifically, uh, because that's where you know that you want to become more aerobic. We don't know about running and biking. Uh, the the number one thing for you, the most important thing, is to avoid doing things that actually stimulate or trigger anaerobic improvements. So, for example, if you go regularly to a master swim squad, you may be very familiar with doing a lot of all-out 25s and 50s and the like. And that's an example of something that will stimulate anaerobic improvements. And the longer the recoveries between those uh, those repetitions are, the more anaerobic those workouts will be. But here's another example that is a bit less extreme. Let's say you plan to do a VO2 max swim, which is perfectly fine because that is aerobic development. Uh, so you plan to do a VO2 max swim based on 75 meter or yard repeats. And those might take you a minute or a bit more than a minute to complete. There is a risk with this workout, and especially depending on how long you make the recovery, that you actually end up making it at least partially uh, an anaerobically stimulating workout, uh, because the, I guess the work durations are sufficiently short that you might overpace part of them and go really anaerobic at the beginning. And if uh, the recoveries are long enough, then you can recover between them well enough that this happens repeatedly. So a couple of ways to get around this, to make a workout like this more aerobic and uh, make sure that you don't fall into that trap, is to reduce the recovery duration. But uh, there is a fine line here because you still need to recover enough so that you get in the quality work at a high enough intensity that you reach that sort of VO2 max intensity but but not go too much above it. So so that's uh, definitely a bit of a challenge. I personally, when I do VO2 max work on in swimming, because I have passive recoveries, I like to go with a 2 to 1 work to rest ratio. So if I were doing 75s and uh, let's say I swim them in one minute, then I would take 30 seconds recovery. Uh, on the bike and the run, I would typically prescribe active recoveries. So then the recoveries would be longer than a two to one ratio. So typically it might be a one to one ratio. That's uh, that's quite normal, quite standard. But on the swim, I go with a two to one work to rest ratio because of the passive recoveries. But the other option and perhaps slightly safer option is to increase the distances of those repeats. So instead of doing 75s, you might do 150s. And, and do less of them, of course, do less. So the total uh, volume or duration is about the same. 
but uh, doing them slightly longer that forces you to stay in that v they should be short enough that you can still reach the right intensity so they can't be too long and 150s for many age group athletes that's that's on the the higher end you don't really w- want to go any higher than that for vo2 max repeats but uh, but that might be a good way for you as well to make sure that you you keep yourself in that vo2 max type of zone and and not trigger those anaerobic adaptations by going too hard especially those first 25 or 50 meters of the repeats so that was number one avoid doing anything that that triggers actually becoming more anaerobic Uh, number two is to just maximize the total amount of work that you do and uh, it doesn't have to be just zone two it can be anything aerobic that that doesn't trigger anaerobic adaptation so so up to zone five as i just described up to v up to vo2 max uh, as long as you keep it aerobic so so yes total volume as we discussed in another question is uh, is highly highly important here number three is to do strength uh, endurance or muscular endurance workouts we talked a little bit about that in q a number 20 as well so for swimming specifically that would mean paddles uh, the one caveat here is if you have, uh, you don't, I think, have poor technique because your times are sufficiently fast that you can safely do, uh, safely do pedal work. Uh, but uh, for some athletes uh, with poor technique, poor shoulder mobility, they might be an injury risk. So always take this, uh, take a risk benefit assessment with this as well, whether you're going to use pedals or not. So use pedals that will uh, force you to use a higher force, I guess in swimming and also pedals and bends is one of my favorites that's uh, that's really really good when you do this type of work you want the intensity to be at least moderately hard if not hard so think zone four effort you might go up to like threshold effort uh, or on the bike a perfect example would be sweet spot intensity and that way you can get mo- the most out of those adaptations that you want uh, so uh, so yeah uh, using Strength endurance, muscular endurance workouts in any discipline, but on the swim specifically, there would be typically paddles, but there are other tools like sponges or even parachutes, that sort of thing. Just don't make uh, the paddles, don't, don't use them all the time, uh, by no means. Uh, don't make it a crutch. And uh, nobody listening should uh, take this as, a, uh, as an opportunity to go and use paddles all the time. But there is definitely a place for doing paddle work, especially if you want to... Uh, to decrease uh, that um, that anaerobic component of your swim to increase your aerobic strength. And uh, number four here is doing one or two workouts per week in a fasted or glycogen uh, state, state of low glycogen. Uh, so uh, these should be your easier endurance aerobic swims. So I don't recommend doing this, uh, doing fasted swims if you have a threshold set or a VO2 max set. Uh, because you want to be able to get the absolute most that you can out of these types of workouts. But for those lower intensity sets, the, the endurance swims, aerobic swims, uh, try to do one or two of them fasted. Uh, that can also have have an additional impact on helping you reduce that anaerobic component. And uh, yeah, we will return to this subject actually uh, on uh, Monday already when I interview exercise physiologist Sebastian Weber. So uh, this is one of the topics we discuss, how to 
decrease your your anaerobic component we also discuss how to increase your your aerobic uh, power your vo2 max and and how to increase your anaerobic component which is relevant for for some especially like we have cyclists listening to this podcast and uh, and perhaps some runners at uh, some shorter distances for them it might be very relevant to do that as well uh, so but that will be from a general perspective and i guess also a cycling perspective rather than swimming so definitely tune in to that monday episode it is a good one so uh, okay this q a as well as last week's they have been quite technical a lot of discussions about aerobic and anaerobic things etc so to anybody listening who may think that uh, wow this is too advanced for me um, or my questions are too basic for this podcast uh, absolutely not there is no question too basic i do want to get more beginner questions to answer as well and the basic questions are the most important so because now we're so more in the range of more marginal gains i guess not not marginal gains but but definitely more marginal compared to some of those very important questions that a beginner might ask that make might make a huge difference at the early point of somebody's triathlon career so so please don't be intimidated by a couple of episodes like this uh, from sending in any questions that you have however basic or simple you may think that they are and and in fact that uh, if you are a beginner athlete uh, I, I would say that you should not at all care, worry about these things. I don't, I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen, but I'm saying that you shouldn't worry about it. Uh, because one of the most important things I think that you need to develop as a triathlete is the ability to distinguish between and prioritize, I guess, between what is actually important for you at this stage of your career and, uh, and prioritize that over other things that may be more or less important that at this current stage of your triathlon career so uh, just to reiterate keep sending in any questions you need answered nothing is too simple and there are many 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 beginners listening in uh, and just as i talked about in a past episode that i do uh, try to keep a ladies first policy with choosing questions i'm i might say right now that i also uh, i'm going to and i already do try to make sure that whenever i get more basic beginner questions I definitely push them forwards towards the front of the question queue. So don't be intimidated. Keep sending in those beginner questions as well. A link in the show notes to Q&A number 20. Definitely go and listen to that if you did not already, because that will help you understand more of this episode. And uh, also, I want to remind you to rate and review the podcast uh, somebody who I want to thank and give a shout out to for doing that is Brian McCormick from the UK who writes lots of balanced info, five stars. Great podcast, very informative with evidence presented from many sources and not just from the host's point of view. I've been training for 10 years and have learned loads since, since subscribing a month ago. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate that. And yes, I do try to uh, bring a varied source of uh, of perspectives onto the podcast because that i think also is how how anybody learns the most by by hearing different perspectives from different sides of uh, of the spectrum i guess if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast please 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 do so uh, as you noticed we don't have a sponsor for today's episode and those ratings and reviews go a long way to helping sponsors uh, helping get sponsors to the show and uh, this uh, show has uh, quite a lot of costs associated to it with putting it out there not just the 
the hosting and etc but also things like audio editing and also uh, my assistant who makes show notes helps with that etc so there, there are a lot of costs associated with a podcast it's free to listen to but it's definitely not free to produce so i'm sort of relying uh, on on sponsors and those ratings and reviews really really help convince sponsors that this is a show worth sticking with so thank you in advance if you can take just a minute to go and rate and review in your podcast app or on itunes wherever you get your podcast thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon